Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. Common sense. It's often said to be the single most important ingredient missing in the debate over vaping. Here at RegWatch, we make the point regularly. Yet, when it comes to the moral crusaders who wage war on vaping, the plea for common sense falls on deaf ears. Why is that? Well, joining us today to help us unravel this mystery and more is Guy Bentley, Director of Consumer Freedom at the Reason Foundation, a nonprofit libertarian free market think tank based out of Washington, D.C. Guy, thanks for joining us again on RegWatch. Thanks for having me, Brent. Oh, it's great to have you, and our viewers may recognize you as well as we met up in D.C. for the Vapors Rally, and we dashed off a quick interview with you, and it was clear there was a lot more for us to talk about, and we wanted to get you back on the show. First off, let me just say to our viewers that we have taped this interview in the second week of December, and Guy is just about to head off on vacation, and we really wanted to uh, get this in the can. So not certain when you're watching this yet, but barring the fact of potentially vaping burning down, which you never know could happen. Um, you're watching this and there's still an industry and uh, we're looking forward to the new year. So uh, Guy though, speaking of things burning down, uh, Reason uh, Foundation, Reason.com, Reason Mag, the magazine, you guys have done a lot of coverage on this issue. Walk our audience through what Reason is and then let's start talking about the coverage. Sure thing. So Reason Foundation, as you said, is a nonprofit free market think tank. We were founded in 1978. Now, many people might also be familiar with Reason Magazine, and that was actually set up 10 years prior in 1968. Um, so we recently cel celebrated uh, the 50th anniversary of the magazine. Um, and the magazine's role has been in a large way influencing the culture and the climate of ideas and a libertarian direction. And the foundation's role is much more focused on direct public policy issues and public policy implementation. Uh, Reason Foundation works in a number of areas, including uh, transportation, education, drug policy reform, pension reform, and of course, the areas that we're talking about today. So um, vaping regulation as well. And so we've, uh, we do work um, across the United States and have also engaged internationally as well on many different public policy um, issues. And in fact, back in the 70s, our founder, Bob Poole, um, wrote a, a very famous document on privatization, which was a, a major influence um, in the setting up and direction of uh, um, the reforms that uh, Margaret Thatcher introduced into Britain in the 1980s. Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s. So it, if you think about it, though, it, it seems a little bit illogical or off, you know, when you're thinking of right-wing Thatcherites and supporting vaping. How does that work together? Well, I think because Reason is a primary libertarian think tank, we're not a conservative think tank. So we really passionately believe that a society that promotes individual liberty, the rule of law, a dynamic market economy, but also with large amount of social toleration in what John Stuart Mill uh, um, proposed with in his great treatise on liberty, that people should be free to pursue their own desires and lifestyles so long as they don't interfere with those of others. Now, often that can conflict with both the progressive view of the world, but also many conservative views of the world. So in many ways, um, reason represents um, trying to promote freedom both on an individual and personal lifestyle level and also in the area of economic freedom and your freedom to pursue your own economic interests. And we think those two actually go together and are not in conflict with each other. That's how why we can advocate very strongly for drug legalization, 
and reform of drug laws, reform for a much more liberal immigration system and open labor market, and also um, lower taxes, school choice, um, uh, privatization, all those areas which are traditionally associated with many free market organizations. Sure. Yeah, definitely a lot of that is conservative in nature uh, and, you know, in the general overall political principles of things, it sounds pretty conservative. Well, I think it's, it's conservatives in some ways, certainly in the sense of promoting private property and the rule of law. But also many of our conservative friends have somewhat of a blind spot when it comes to areas of personal freedom in terms of what you decide to consume, whether that's drugs or um, illegal or legal, such as uh, nicotine and vaping. Um, it's not just Democrats who are a big problem when it comes to the war on vaping and the war on nicotine. Unfortunately, we have many self-declared conservatives and Republicans who are, who are very concerned to ensure that they regulate what people consume in those areas. And also conser conservatives are often very hostile to the free flow of people between countries in terms of um, immigration, uh, whereas they used to be very much in favor of the free flow of goods and capital, although in some countries that unfortunately may be changing as well. So oftentimes in this current era, it feels as um, uh, libertarians uh, are l losing some friends, but hopefully we're gaining more than we lose. Let's uh, pop over actually to Reason's website. I've got up here for our viewers uh, your uh, author's page here. And just to take a quick scan through some of your recent columns, the CDC botched its vaping investigation and helped spark a national panic. A vaping ban would be bad policy and bad politics. The American Heart Association's quit lying campaign spreads misinformation about e-cigarettes. Yeah, that's a bit strange. Oh, we'll talk about that. Trump's decision to back away from vaping ban is the right policy. Evidence shows soda taxes have not reduced obesity. That is interesting because in, the, in our last half, as we uh, get into this issue, I want to expand out our conversation in terms of the wider war on liberty that is being fought. And obviously other products is certainly sodas. You might not think that's a big deal, but once you start chipping away at things, they all start to fall. And it's not just you either, Guy. Um, Jacob Sullum on Reason, I mean, he's been writing on this topic now for years with vaping. And then before that, for two decades, on tobacco control. And he wrote one of the best books, uh, uh, For Your Own Good, which I brought with me here, and we'll probably talk about that in a minute. So let me ask you this, um, and let me ask you this. When it comes to the CDC botched its vaping investigation and helped spark, spark a national panic, what do you mean by that? Well, I think what I mean by that, Brent, is that when the, we started getting reports many months ago now about a host of um, vaping-related lung illnesses, um, injuries, and uh, tragedy and some consequences, uh, in some cases, deaths. Um, we absolutely needed to investigate what was going on here because this was an unprecedented outbreak. It had not been seen in the United States, despite vaping have, having been on the market for um, around 10 years with millions of users. And also it hadn't been happening internationally in markets where vaping has been around. It's legal um, in the United Kingdom, where I am at the moment, very famously. Vaping is actively promoted by public health authorities. In Europe, e-cigarettes are also widespread and available. So it really was something that needed um, thorough investigation and urgent investigation to find out what was happening. The problem was not having an investigation. The problem was the CDC's response in saying that 
instead of looking at the majority of association in terms of these cases, in terms of the products people were using, and at giving people co uh, correct advice in terms of what they should use and what they shouldn't use, the CDC gave very broad blanket advice, for instance, saying people should refrain from vaping entirely. Now, if your choice is obviously between vaping nicotine and smoking a cigarette, and you might have a strong um, chance of relapsing to a cigarette, that's a suboptimal choice for you in terms, of your, in terms of your health. So that could have really negative consequences. It could also cloud people's thinking and perception of vaping in that people, if the CDC is saying refrain from all vaping and emphasizing these illnesses and deaths, many people will think that all vaping is causing this, that in fact, nicotine vaping is not as um, uh, relatively safer as many have been saying for a long time, that in fact, maybe this is just as dangerous as smoking and governments need to react in a very strong way to counter this. Now, that, that has been disastrous for reasons we can go, in, go into in a minute. But contrast this sure. with, say, with, say, for instance, the outbreak of E. coli that happened in the United States last year, where we had many cases of people getting sick, sick from E. coli. The CDC interviewed patients, asked them what they had been eating and so on, and found that it was, particular kind, that it was lettuce coming from a particular kind of region and gave thorough advice saying, you know, uh, if you have lettuce that is not, uh, not labeled, you don't know where it's coming from and so on, refrain from eating it. They didn't say refrain from eating all lettuce or uh, lettuce-related products. The blanket statement uh, uh, of, of these um, CDC pronouncements was thoroughly unnecessary and became more and more unnecessary as the months went on. It should have been somewhat commonsensical from the start that this has never happened before. It's not happening anywhere else in the world where the exact same products are available, but it's happening here. So clearly it's not a problem with the commercial nicotine market. It's something else that's going on, especially even, even when we saw in the very early weeks and months of this investigation, that the overwhelming majority of these cases were related to the illicit THC market and the vaping of marijuana oils or THC products. Um, and so w instead of clarifying on that score, the CDC has been, uh, I would say, just lying, but lying by omission in saying that, oh, well, because we don't know the exact, for instance, brand or product that is the cause of all of these things, um, and of course, it's not going to be one brand or just one product, then you should refrain from using all vaping products. Well, that's, that, that's entirely illogical. And it seems to me that if there is one agency in the world that actually has done the most to define what an e-cigarette is and had been doing so for seven, eight years, um, and just, you know, describing what ENDS products are and so forth, it had been the CDC. And if you look through CDC's definitions and all of their research and everything else that they had done up until August 2019, they had never associated e-cigarettes before with THC or any other cannabis products. So it was a clear decision in our mind here at RegWatch to conflate the two, it wasn't by accident or some mere, uh, you know, mis mislabeling. Uh, I actually completely agree. I think even if you want to be as generous as you can and say that this was not a absolutely conscious decision, people going out um, uh, with the intended purpose of smearing the entire category of vaping and e-cigarettes, it was awfully convenient that you give this broad advice at the same time when many groups, uh, for instance, such as uh, the American Heart Association, Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids and so on, 
are waging an all-out war to ban a whole series of e-cigarette products and uh, essentially the vast majority of the e-cigarette market in the form of non-tobacco flavored e-liquids. And that these two came together and that especially as we knew, for instance, data on the, again, another uptick in the number of um, youth who, are, um, who have been using e-cigarettes in the past month, that you give this broad-based advice, you have the twin crises on the one hand of uh, way too many kids are using e-cigarettes illicitly, and you have this outbreak of lung problems that's never been seen before with the use of e-cigarettes. And it's very convenient to conflate exactly as you say, which they have never done before, e-cigarettes which are nicotine-containing devices or non-nicotine-containing devices, but that you still vape to uh, get off smoking with a, a THC marijuana oil. These are two completely different products. I mean, e-cigarettes themselves are platforms. E-cigarettes are platforms, and what determines your level of risk is what you are vaping, not if you are vaping at all. That's the most important thing here. Vaping is a process, not a product. So saying that vaping causes X or Y, it's what is vaping? Now, this can come off as commonsensical to anybody if you talk to them with it, uh, for a few minutes about it. People can intuit this, but CDC hide behind an, an incredible uh, vague language in order to say, well, we're not quite sure about this. We have reams of evidence now about what's been causing these illnesses, uh, uh, these illnesses and deaths, uh, far more so than we did for instance, with E. coli outbreaks or any other similar similar outbreaks that the CDC deals with, are, has a huge history of dealing with. This seems to be a very special case, and I don't think it's a coincidence that this was a very hot political topic with many groups, especially individuals within the CDC, being incredibly hostile to the vaping industry, vapors as consumers, and to the idea of tobacco harm reduction more broadly. We knew September 6th that this was a THC issue. On August 21st, the San Francisco Chronicle came out with a full article and had nothing to do with nicotine. This is on August 21st, a full article about multiple cases of California people getting sick from these pop-up uh, THC vending. One of the Department of Health at the early states in August had reported it was all THC they did not report nicotine. So it's just absolutely, totally malevolent and treachery for the CDC to take to November. So does any of that uh, get through on the right-hand side or are we just screaming at a brick wall? I think on the, on the right-hand side, it definitely has got through. And even to a lot of the mainstream media, who I think a lot of reporters who originally were doing work on this story, who many of us were very upset with for not being as nuanced as they should have been in their coverage and really in really paying attention to the details of this. Um, a lot of them might, I, I, if I was one of them, I would feel incredibly burned that I've been misreporting a story for several months. That wasn't necessarily my fault. I rely on the CDC to give me accurate information when I'm writing a story to inform the public. But, but instead, I've been led along a garden path and been told, don't, oh no, don't listen to uh, people who are advocating for vaping or e-cigarettes, they're self-interested, they're just trying to fight off regulation of some kinds, and that several months later it turns out that those people you said don't listen to were in fact right all along. I mean, as I say in one of my articles, the public would be better informed on this issue if they had listened to a vape shop owner than the head of the CDC. Now that's a really scandalous position to be in um, uh, with the nation's top public health agency 
re really withholding more information uh, uh, from the public than, say, a vape shop owner or even great, great, um, uh, the great journalist at Leafly, um, uh, the site that covers much of the cannabis industry, who did great investigative work on this, discovering the supply chains of how these illicit and bootleg products were, get were getting across the country and so on. Fantastic journalism. Why was this not at the New York Times or the Washington Post or any of these things? And but we have seen a lot of the narrative and media coverage change, thankfully, for the better. Um, Megan McArdle, for instance, has done uh, great articles over at the Washington Post and many others have as well, saying that this was a massive mistake and a really major miscommunication. And that now even this has been used as an argument on a totally unrelated issue to do with, for instance, the debate over whether to ban um, non-tobacco flavored e-cigarettes. These two issues are totally separate, um, but this has been used to bolster that argument. And you see even the New York Times coming out with an editorial saying that prohibition is not the answer. And I think because they realized, in fact, that whilst they have been and still are quite hostile to e-cigarettes in many ways, they realized that prohibition is not the answer. And that, in fact, many people have been purposefully conflating these issues in order to support a very weak argument. Yeah, and you would think, obviously, the... Obviously, the progressive side of the media, the progressive media, which New York Times, Washington Post, and definitely, and all that, they have been inclined to obviously just take whatever the agencies hand them on this issue and regurgitate it right back out. That's, that's obviously why we're in this mess. So isn't it, do you find it strange that the group of people that are most not susceptible but the, the group of people that are most associated with, say, holding government to account, the people that are, are most kind of predisposed to believe in that big bad government can, you know, trample on the people, because the left does believe that too. Progressives have been known to be, you know, during the Nixon era and everything else. You would think that there would be some suspicion about um, a medical federal agency um, purposefully lying. Mm. Do you know what yeah, I mean? I Does that yeah, uh, no, absolutely. And for instance, many reports and organizations have had that attitude when it's come when it's come to say the issue of marijuana, on calling out agencies for um, over over exaggerating the risks of um, recreational marijuana, and they've been they've been they've been they've been absolutely right in doing so. But I think as as many many of your viewers will know. The uh, e-cigarette, tobacco, and nicotine world uh, is treated very much as a special case. Because I think to most reporters' minds, e uh, the message that comes out from organizations like the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, they, these are organizations which are sim simply taken on faith. They're not interrogated about whether they have a particular agenda, whether what they're saying is accurate. They are, they are the goodies, and the baddies are the big evil tobacco companies. And any consumer of any of these products is a victim. And when you approach a story with that mindset, you're approaching it with the mindset of the tobacco wars of the 1990s. And many reporters haven't really moved on since then. Many of the original players in those fights have now evolved from fighting cigarettes, which may have been justified at the time, to now fighting e-cigarettes, because we've seen smoking rates plummeting, among, particularly amongst youth, and we've seen smoking rates plummet amongst adults. So many of these organizations, to continue surviving, need to find a new crusade, a new venture 
to justify their continued existence. And vaping is a fantastic way for them to have a new moral panic to justify their continued existence, their continued funding and campaigning. But unfortunately, a lot of these organizations are just taken on faith. Nobody, nobody interrogates whether what the campaign for tobacco-free kids says is accurate or right, or if there's a political agenda here, what is their end agenda? Is it prohibition of all these products? Nobody, nobody asks these questions because it's, it, we live in a very simplistic time where they are just seen as the good guys standing up for kids and anybody else on the other side questioning whether prohibition or, or, or um, whether an abstinence-only approach to nicotine, not to cigarettes, but to nicotine, questioning whether that's a bad idea, is treated with a great degree of skepticism. I'm fine with reporters treating me or anybody else with a great de degree of skepticism and interrogating any of the work we do. I think, uh, to concur with what you're saying, it would just be nice to see that level of rigor, of skepticism, of curiosity applied to both federal agencies and nonprofits in this space. Yeah, because I think about it, and I go, geez, you know, if this whole thing had happened with regard to CDC and this malfeasance um, had happened during, say, Bush two uh, era, with all you know the hu huge, massive, you know, hysteria around Bush and and the st deep state and neocons and everything else, right? I just can't imagine that there wouldn't have been some different reaction, I would think. That's, but well, that's a thought, I don't know, I don't know, but if you had transported this 12 years ago, that kind of thing, or you know, in 2004, for instance, what kind of reaction would there have been? If it was, well, if it was George Bush's CDC. If it was George Bush, yeah, well, exactly, but this is a way, unfortunately, in which partisanship makes, makes us stupid. Um, I mean, it is true that President Trump is in the White House, um, so they could say, well, it's Trump CDC and we still trust it. These are agencies which are um, highly independent of um, voters' concerns or, 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 or the concerns of the electorate. They act largely on their own, totally independently, and uh, have great leeway to, um, to dictate policy. And this is not an area that the administration has seemed particularly interested in until recently. They've really been running the show. So Brian King and uh, Anne Shuchak and all the rest of them. I mean, for instance... One of the most disturbing things I found, Brent, was listening back um, a few months ago now to a, a uh, press call that the CD CDC had with many reporters. It was after one of the CDC's uh, evidence updates and so on. And a reporter asked um, uh, Dr. Shukat what, um, why th these, uh, this outbreak of lung diseases had only been happening in the United States and whether they thought that this had been happening before, but hadn't been reported or hadn't been associated with vaping. And um, Dr. Shukat responded that she didn't think it was um, uh, happening beforehand, that this really was something new, and that she said, and I believe I'm almost quoting her verbatim, that something more dangerous is in more frequent use. Now, ab apply that. If you say something more dangerous is in more frequent use, Okay, so then before then, before something more dangerous was in more frequent use, then it wasn't a problem. So you've almost exempted by your own logic the commercial nicotine market for the last 10 years. But no reporter wrote that up. I wrote that up in a, in a, in a piece, but I, I thought that was a huge buried lead. The, the deputy head of the CDC essentially says that this is something new. It's not associated with uh, Juul or independent vape shops or, or anything like that. 
that it's something new and more dangerous, and that's the problem we have to tackle, not refraining from all vaping or smearing the entire vaping category. And so, no, no, please. Well, I was going to say, and on top of that, that strikes me as very odd, because it would have been, because I know the, the, the press you're talking about, it would have been maybe 10 days after that, that Bloomberg released a 4,000 word article attacking the foundational science, so PhD, RCP in England, and, but the whole, the whole premise of it was is that these vaping illnesses have been happening before and we just missed it. They didn't get reported, they didn't get found, and they were pulling out examples of 10 years ago in Europe and even one in Hawaii. So this whole rewriting uh, backwards uh, and it was exactly what that reporter was asking is what Bloomberg ended up reporting. Mm. No, it's it's absolutely incredible. And uh, I, I remember that that article very well, that Bloomberg article, which is, I mean, just full of inaccuracies, falsehoods uh, and, and really out, out and out smears. And uh, everyone keeps on talking about, you know, the Public Health England reporter. I mean, they could challenge the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine. They could challenge. I mean, we. Almost with every week, the evidence for the relative risk uh, safety-wise of e-cigarettes versus combustible cigarettes only grows stronger. So we not only know just for a fact, no question, case closed, that these products are safer. We now have a great empirical literature showing that they are more effective than nicotine replacement therapies at helping smokers quit. The evidence around this product keeps on getting stronger which I think is one of the many reasons why the panic around this is starting to gear up because the evidence becomes, at some point becomes overwhelming. You cannot keep um, having a haze of misinformation or just sowing doubt that oh, we don't have enough science yet. We don't have enough science yet. We absolutely do. We absolutely do have enough science to make rational public policy decisions around, uh, around this issue, which doesn't include prohibition. And that was actually one of the key things that was, you know, resurrected, not that it ever went away, but the issue of the science isn't in yet. You know, we don't have the science. It's not there. And and that came out in the White House meeting several times uh, used by uh, Meredith Beckman from uh, PAVE. And, of course, several of the others who AMA was there and so forth. And they were all saying, well, you know, if the science comes in and, and it turns out, OK, that's fine. But it's not here yet. So and that's just such an old, tired argument on their behalf. But the problem is that with progressives, they just keep banging away at these key points and eventually they uh, crack through. And with the lung illness and, uh, you know, the CDC's malfeasance here and malevolency, I, I totally, I think it's on purpose, uh, what they've done, they found a pretext. They've been waiting for a pretext. The pretext came. They needed death associated with vaping, even if it wasn't directly connected, they connected the two in order to destroy the virtues of vaping, the virtue of vaping, and to move the product category of vaping out of the no risk or almost zero risk, safer than, you know, cigarettes risk, move it from that to the as deadly or more deadlier than smoking. And then because if you can get it there, then you can trigger off all the precautionary principle mechanisms and everything else that you need to actually remove liberty. That's exactly what we've seen uh, both in the United States with a, a, a host of attempted bans, most, uh, well, the most outrageous of which being in Massachusetts with an emergency ban 
of all vaping products. I was recently in Massachusetts over Thanksgiving, and it is incredible seeing the shelves lined with Marlboro and Camel and, 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 and not seeing any vaping product and thinking that this was somehow sensible. And then you have other states trying to ban flavors and so on. But this, what the CDC has done, Brent, is it hasn't just affected the United States. It's really affected the rest of the world. India, which has, I believe, about 12% of the world's uh, smokers, of the world's entire smoking population, with about 1 million tobacco-related deaths a year, has banned e-cigarettes entirely, just entirely, based specifically on the CDC's panic over these vaping deaths. The um, uh, Indian government was very clear that they were extremely worried that young people in the United States were getting sick and dying from vaping-related products, so they're going to ban this product entirely. This is a this is a huge public health crisis now that now India, with one of the highest smoking populations in the world, is going to be denied life saving life saving alternatives to cigarettes. And Indonesia as well, we see President Duterte um, uh, now in a massively draconian way clamping down on e-cigarettes and vaping again while cigarettes while cigarettes go free. I mean that. The damage is not just being done in the United States, it's spreading all over the world and it's cre creating real harm to everybody. And the only, they, these people are not benefiting public health, the only people they are benefiting are the nonprofits who campaign for this stuff and also the, um, uh, the sales of combustible cigarettes. It, 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 is, it cannot be anything but. So um, on the CDC, and we'll just stay on this issue for a minute and then I'll, we're gonna widen out. Um, or zero in, it depends on how we look at it. But on the CDC, so clearly something's happened here. I know our viewers ask, ask a lot, what's being done to hold them to account? Can anything be done? What's the outlook there? Uh, I think, I think um, things can be done to hold, them, uh, hold the CDC to account. Uh, myself and, uh, and several colleagues and other organizations have um, instituted FOIA requests for uh, the email communications between CDC officials and many of these anti-vaping organizations. So that's, from the that's the freedom of information request. That is the freedom of information request. So we can um, try and see if there's been any um, uh, any uh, unfair play between these organizations and the CDC over these many months. But also, I think uh, uh, if you watch the recent um, Senate hearings, uh, on, on uh, vapor-related issues with uh, both uh, Mitch Seller and the deputy director of the CDC. Uh, many senators were asking about this, of, you know, saying, oh, well, now it, it appears this is a THC-related problem or, and, and not a nicotine problem, and really trying to hold the CDC to account. I think once we, the CDC finally is forced to put a line under this and say, okay, this is not commercial, legal nicotine products, that there will be a massive chance for legislators who I think will have an interest in this to question CDC officials, hold them to account, and for media organizations to hold them to, to account. We can see what was happening with vaping and e-cigarettes before this happened, see what happened afterwards, see how the public perception of e-cigarettes has changed. For instance, Brent, there was a really terrible poll uh, in Morning Consoles a while ago showing that the vast majority of Americans believed that um, Juul was responsible for these, uh, out, this outbreak of illnesses and deaths, not THC marijuana oils. And they were given the option to choose. They could have chosen THC marijuana, marijuana oils, but they didn't. I think it was around 66% chose Juul. Perceptions have massively shifted in the United States with most people incorrectly believing 
e-cigarettes are just as or more dangerous than combustible cigarettes. That is clearly going to have an effect on people's behavior and on their consumption choices. And, and the, the fault directly lies with the CDC for this. Clearly it does. Um, and obviously it's uh, caused, well, you've got the states where they've got the bans in, but then you've got, you know, chopped off 50% of the business across the board on all the businesses that are still in business. And then in Canada, business is down like 40 to 50% too as well. I know that UK has been hurt. I mean, we're talking about a massive uh, carving out of this industry. And, you know, every dollar that's not spent in the industry that was spent the month before this uh, attack happened on vaping is a dollar uh, uh, now going back to smoking or, or at least three quarters of a dollar for sure. Yeah, no, the substitution effects will be will be very clear, especially especially in the short and immediate term. And then there's also the things that we can't that we can't can calculate, for instance, the, the deadweight loss, if you will, of how would people have behaved if this hadn't happened? Would we add more people uptake, uh, more of an uptick in vaping than otherwise would have happened? And I think that is uh, undeniably true. We had really good sales figures coming in, lots of businesses doing incredibly well helping people. So it's not just the current vapors who might be switching back to smoking. It's the people who are being deterred from switching in the first place because that taking that first transition step from smoking to vaping is a big jump for many people. And this is just another barrier put in the way of that transition process. That's a good point. You know, with regard to holding CDC to account, I, I've got a concern there that, that while the more, you know, the more friendlier, naturally progressive left, you know, uh, rags, the Times and the Post, while they may be critical, have they yet to, or do you expect that they will? Actually, holding CDC to account means one thing and one thing only. People died because of what you did. Do you think Washington Post and New York Times will go that far or will they just toss some bones to making their life, you know, you know, not living hell, but, you know, give CDC some, you know, gives, give them a little bit of trouble. But but the point the point being is if they don't go to the to here's when you were here's you were saying this, 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 this and this and people were dying here, 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 here and here. And if you had said clearly that it was THC and not nicotine, you know, you would have these people likely would not um, have died. Uh, unfortunately, I think the pressure will need to come from organs and institutions outside of those two. I think both of them will actually follow where others lead. Um, I'd be more optimistic for other outlets and organizations and, and legislators doing that push because the Washington Post and the New York Times are notoriously deferential when it, when, when it comes to um, criticizing uh, public health agencies, particularly on tobacco related issues. On other issues, as I mentioned, for instance, with marijuana, often with um, many kinds of drug testing, investigations into alcohol and so on, um, many of these outlets are um, very curious and do great journalistic work. But uh, unfortunately, there is just a blind spot when it comes to the nicotine space. And unfortunately, I don't, I don't think that they will be uh, really pushing this issue and pushing a mistake. I think it will be much more a, well, it was best to be cautious and have the ultra caution, uh, the precautionary principle that, uh, approach that you mentioned, that in fact, this is probably a sensible thing and give the benefit of the doubt. 
But, you know, as um, Cass Sunstein, who's written extensively in the precautionary principle, has um, said very eloquently, and one of my former co colleagues, um, Julian Morris, um, the precautionary principle uh, is, uh, in fact, far more dangerous than any hazard it seeks to solve. And uh, that's exactly right. I've got Cass's book right here. Uh, <laughs> Perfect. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I brought it uh, just for our episode so I could read out... Uh, the precautionary principle thing here. So, I mean, yeah, Cass is fantastic, though. However, though, uh, I, I don't politically agree with his wife. <laughs> and, and, and him on many issues. He's very he's very um, uh, misguided when it comes to the issue of soda taxes and calorie labels. He's 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 very rational in his uh, approach to risk on many things. But often when a hypothesis that he believes in, for instance, that soda taxes reduce obesity is disproven and disproven conclusively. Uh, I see he still tweets out, you know, X study that shows, well, this soda tax reduced calorie consumption by two calories a day or something insignificant that makes no difference and says, well, maybe this is still an idea worth pursuing, which is unfortunate. But I agree in the main, a lot of the overarching philosophical approach uh, he takes to risk is, is very sound. I think there's a huge value here because he does he is on the political left, you know, and he's got uh, an approach, an academic approach to the precautionary principle that, I mean, is right on the money. Right. So, yeah. so good that that, you know, he's got that. Hopefully he's sharing it a lot more. Uh, and, you know, that's all I could say. But let me just read this. So, again, this is uh, Laws of Fear. It's Cass uh, Sustine Stein. Sorry, excuse me. The precautionary principle takes many forms, but in all of them, the animating idea is that regulators should take steps to protect against potential harms, even if causal chains are unclear, and even if we do not know that those harms will come to fruition. Exactly. I, I guarantee you 95% or more of our audience has no idea about this principle operating, and it's enshrined in EU law, it's enshrined in Canadian law, it's recognized in the US, but it's not enshrined, but that's a battle that gets fought every day, year after year, by all the activist groups across environmental, public health, and everything else to get the precautionary principle put in because it is anti-democratic, it's illiberal, and it's the tool in which that they can take control. No, that's exactly right. You see the dangers of the precautionary principle applying from all sectors, from vaping to genetically modified uh, foods to self-driving cars. I mean, one of the real tragedies of the precautionary principle has been the crusade against golden rice, for instance, genetically mod and genetically modified foods, which could... Um, feed and improve the health of millions and tens of millions of the poorest people in the world, but are relentlessly opposed by environmental activists who, who trumpet the non-existent harms of genetically modified crops. It's one of the most studied areas of, of recent years, and the evidence is no, not just overwhelming, it is conclusive that genetically modified uh, foods are, 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 are not harmful. And things such as golden rice you know, it could have had a huge impact, particularly in countries like India and so on. But it is precisely this approach, this precautionary principle approach that stops innovations like GM foods, self-driving cars, vaping, all these things from having a fair shot in a free market and improving people's lives. 
let me ask you this. There, I, I keep talking about progressives on our show, and I don't have a lot of people that are guests that are on that are, can talk about what progressivism is, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on, because it, it's important for our viewers to hear some kind of concepts here that aren't just coming from me. So um, otherwise, you know, I might be sounding like some lunatic, which I know I am, but I'm looking for some help. <laughs> What is a progressive? The, 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 best kind, the best kind of lunatic. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, uh, a progressive, to my mind, is somebody who prioritizes um, the, well, the well-being uh, of, of the collective over the individual. It is, um, uh, at its more benign element, somebody who believes that um, you should use uh, the tools and levers of the state to elevate and lift up uh, the, the least fortunate among us. And that, in fact, a a group of um, wise and public spirited experts can, in fact, use the levers of the modern bureaucratic state in order to do so, whether that's through through redistributive economic policy, whether that's through um, regulate regulatory policy. And also that in helping people, for instance, whether it's um, uh, helping them out of poverty or so on, that, in fact, there is something in the progressive mindset. Um, not all progressives, it has to be said, but a, a large majority of progressives, in that people are uh, really not capable of making many decisions in their lives because they, for instance, lack the information that is available. So they make suboptimal choices. So um, they actually can't pursue their own desires as they see fit. So a progressive critique of my of my position would be, well, Guy, you, you say you want a free market and people... Um, uh, making their own individual choices, but that's just a fantasy land. We don't live in a world where all consumers have perfect information and can make the absolute best choices for themselves. And my re reply to that is, that is absolutely true. But also, neither do the regulators. The regulators do not have perfect information. The only person who knows what uh, their own preferences are and how they want to live their life is that individual. A regulator or a bureaucrat uh, particularly a far distant one, cannot know the preferences of millions of ordinary people. They could look at how I live my life and say, many things I do are irrational. They could say, well, guy, you're not going to go back to smoking. Why are you vaping? Why do you drink these things? Why do you, many choices I make in my life. Um, and they say that, that by our calculations is irrational. Uh, you're not saving enough money, for instance, you should be forced to save more. But I, I'm the only person who can judge the value of each activity to me. No third party can do that. So in fact, even in a world where consumers don't have perfect information of everything, it is much better to leave those decisions with individual consumers and communities and devolving power down to the lowest possible level than centralizing power and having it controlled from the top down. The greatest things in the world are really bottom-up innovations. They're not, they haven't come from the top down. And I always think about it like this, for instance, to take it to vaping. Imagine if a government agency had invented e-cigarettes. It would be hailed as, the gr as one of the great triumphs of, of, of government invention. If e-cigarettes if e had been funded with a government research and development grant, it would be hailed as one of the greatest successes of the public sector and what the public sector can do as opposed to the private sector. But that's not how vaping came about. It came about originally, as we know, back in 2003 with Hon Lik, uh, a Chinese pharmacist, tinker, tinkering away and inventing something. And then that spawned a multi-billion dollar industry 
with tens of millions of consumers, thousands of different flavors and models and devices catering to everybody. If the government had tried to do that, they couldn't have. They couldn't have known what the preferences of consumers, how this industry would have developed. You would have had one standard issue model uh, uh, in perhaps one flavor distributed all the same. The government is not good at planning the car industry, uh, the farming industry. It's not good at planning the tobacco or vaping industry. We've known this for many years, but unfortunately, these battles have to be keep being fought again and again and again. Innovation is a bottom-up process, not a top-down one. And I think that is a fundamental uh, insight that progressives often miss because they often have a, a view that they have an end state in society that they want to see, a, a ideal society, if you will. I, I won't um, belittle it and call it a utopia. I, many people aren't utopians, but they have a vision of what society would look like. And then because society doesn't conform to that vision, they see error all around them in need of correction. For instance, take the obesity um, uh, issue. Um, even to think obesity or the level of obesity in society is a problem takes a kind of collectivist mindset. Why, why is it a problem? It might be a problem if it's, say, you have a socialized healthcare system and then that costs you money. Um, but, but say if it didn't cost any money at all, why, why would you care about what other people weigh? You could try and persuade them, say, you know, it's good for your health if you lose some weight or change your habits. But if people with, with that information refuse to do so, then progressives say, well, you're making an error. We have to tax you into conforming to a certain weight or so on. So uh, I think that's a, a particular downfall of uh, the progressive mindset, which in many, which in, in many aspects can be admirable and things, we would, and things we would totally agree on that we should look out for our fellow human beings and try and raise the least among us. These are perfectly admirable sentiments, but they just really cannot be achieved with a top-down centralized state. It seems often that progressive means illiberal, ill-intolerant, indignant, self-righteous. I mean, they, there's no room to move them. So if they see error, are they open to discuss discussion about their assessment of that error? And that's what it seems to be not the case. No, uh, unfortunately, I do think, as particularly in the times we live now, there is an, a self-righteousness and a, and a certainty uh, that has taken over some parts of the progressive left, which has become extremely intolerant of different views or opinions um, and sees any opposition to its ideas as being nefarious or funded by some evil big corporate interest. The idea that you could disagree about an idea and not have some nefarious motive uh, is, is beyond their thinking uh, or, or many of their thinking. I don't question that, you know, well, you hold these progressive ideas because, you know, with a, a progressive kind of society, there are the there are the people being organized, the rest of us, and there are the organizers. And they think that they will be in the organizing camp, uh, organizing the lives of the rest of us. Yeah. Um, and yeah. perhaps they might change their view if they were the ones having things done to them uh, rather than imposing things. Yeah, I mean, the progressive mindset is one where they are, they are a class of experts, right? Only the experts can make these decisions for people. Um, and that's why they feel empowered to do it. And that really, truly is rooted in the original formation of the of the mindset. 
No, that's exactly right. If we go back to the progressive era in the early 20th century, particularly in the United States, this is the, this is the whole theory behind it, particularly with people such as Woodrow Wilson, uh, who was a particularly terrible president, um, uh, who resegregated the U.S. civil service and did many terrible things. He said the American Constitution was a complete mistake, that in a modern society, in a technological society, you needed wise experts to, um, uh, to organize society. But thankfully, we had great thinkers, other great thinkers come along in the later part of the century. I think partic most particularly of Friedrich von Hayek, um, who, who um, really blew apart um, these notions, particularly um, uh, in his collection of essays called uh, Individualism and Economic Order, explaining what um, has come to be known as the knowledge problem, that people, uh, bureaucrats and politicians do not have the requisite knowledge, the requisite knowledge to plan societies. Societies are incredibly complex organisms, and it's much better to think of them as evolutionary rather than revolutionary. Or something, or something that can be that can be centrally planned. We saw this back with this with the Soviet Union versus the free economies. The Soviet Union fell, the free economies thrived. We see it in the difference between North Korea and South Korea, between East East Berlin and West Berlin. We see it between Venezuela and Chile. Um, we see you know all over the world, United States and Cuba. We see what works, what doesn't, and we know that free societies and dynamic market economies make us wealthier, healthier, happier, and freer. To, uh, and to your point there, just to make sure for our audience, just before we end up off of it, it's, it really comes down to pricing. That's the argument, is the ability for price knowledge, to be able to manage all the different information you need for pricing, because of course, pricing of components going into a products, and then the pricing mm -hmm. of the products going out, and then you've got all the pricing of the services, the pricing of the labor, it's all about pricing. And Hayek made that argument that it is impossible for government to know at any time what all the right prices are and the billions and quadrillions uh, of different transactions that are needing going on. And only the market and free individuals in the marketplace are, are able to have those negotiations of pricing happening. And that's how the market can, can operate. Otherwise, it just won't operate. That's exactly that. That's exactly right, and he's been and he's been proven correct time and time again. If we look at the great indices, um, both from the Fraser Institute uh, and um, uh, the Heritage Foundation and the Cato Institute, on looking at where are the most economically free places in the world, uh, we see that they are the wealthiest places, the happiest places with the longest life expectancies. The least economically free are always uh, are always the most deprived and ridden by corruption and poverty. And I think there's there's noble motives in the progressive mindset, but I think there is there will always be an innate desire in us because um, capitalism, free markets and free choices, allowing people to live their lives without the interference of others is actually a very new and alien concept to our species. We developed evolutionary in a much more collectivist way. Uh, there was massive scarcity. We had the great Malthusian problem of Whenever, uh, you know, there wasn't enough to eat, we, you, you know, used to die from overpopulation. But it's really only the last few hundred years. And with the uh, advent of really consu uh, consumer capitalism spreading throughout the world, the rule of law and so on, that we've seen a huge explosion of wealth and freedom. And this seems alien and disconcerting to us um, that, 
you know, if somebody is leading a life different to mine, that they're not making a mistake and that, in fact, I shouldn't uh, use my vote or, or whatever to impose my lifestyle preferences on them. The idea that you can live in toleration with other people who have different religions, races, different lifestyle decisions from you. This is relatively new, but it's at the core of what makes a free and successful society. And it really does come down, it, it, even you know, in our own issue of vaping, I think much of the opposition to it is a lot of the time, many of these, many of these groups fighting vaping and e-cigarettes, it is out of, not of science, it's a position born out of prejudice. It is that they simply do not like the fact that somebody like me, that we haven't quit nicotine entirely. The fact that I am still using it and deriving a benefit from it, because I, I, I'm the one who needs to determine whether I'm deriving a benefit or not, that disturbs them. And that, that simply the fact of me doing it disturbs them. It's like that great H.L. Mencken quote that um, the, def the definition of a Puritan is um, uh, somebody, so somewhere, somebody who fears that somebody somewhere will be having a good time. Uh, and that encapsulates exactly, unfortunately, many of the tobacco control movement and a lot of the progressive movements, I'm afraid, who seem, who I think actually now what we're seeing, the progressive movement used to be very much in favor of the legalization of marijuana. I actually strongly suspect that in a very short number of years, I think the United States will legalize marijuana nationwide. I think within a relatively short amount of time, a lot of the progressive left will turn very heavily against marijuana. And the reason they'll turn heavily against it is because it will become a commercial pro product uh, made by profit-making companies. And the minute it becomes a capitalist consumer good, uh, companies that sell marijuana will be demonized as preying on people. Uh, there will be calls for advertising bans, for higher taxes and so on. And so I think I can mark this as with as much certainty as I can, that you will see a big shift in progressive left thinking about drugs. And you will see that the moment they're legalized and the minute they become successful profit-making businesses, they will be disliked by the progressive left. Well, you know, if it wasn't for double standards, progressives wouldn't have any standards at all. So they, they'll switch all over the place, there's no doubt. Okay, so a couple of the last questions here on this that I've got is just to make sure that, that I get in here. I mean, so can we accurately say then that the primary opposition to vaping is from progressives? Um, I, would say, I, I would say it's the prime, yes, but I would say there's a strong conservative element. We've seen people, for instance, from the Trump, Trump administration, Katie Talento, who was uh, previously in the, in the administration, uh, come very fervently out against vaping. Senator Mitt Romney, who has rarely been right on any issue, um, has become uh, very, very passionately against vaping. Many Republicans on the state level are, uh, are against vaping. And many of those um, Republicans, for instance, in, in Massachusetts, voted for a flavor ban on all flavored e-cigarette products and a crippling 75% tax rate. Um, where they think they're going to get all this money uh, from the tax rate after they've made most of the industry illegal is beyond me, but that's for another time.